Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tim Delaney. Tim is the co-founder of JDH Wealth Management, an independent RIA in Northern California that oversees nearly $200 million of assets for 120 affluent clients and 401k plans. But unlike most financial advisors who started out selling life insurance or mutual funds, Tim began his career as a CPA. And it wasn't until after nearly 20 years of experience doing accounting and tax preparation that he decided for the first time to launch a wealth management firm from within the existing accounting business, with the goal of leveraging the firm's existing relationships with his tax clients to begin doing investment management. And in this episode, Tim talks about the transition from tax preparation to wealth management, why he decided from day one to build his wealth management business on a third-party TAMP platform despite the fact that it would take a material chunk of his long-term revenue, and how he structured the wealth management firm as a separate entity from the tax practice, and why he ultimately decided to buy out the wealth management division and part ways from the accounting firm after more than a decade, which, as it turned out, just accelerated the growth of the wealth management firm even further. We also talk at length about the opportunity that CPAs have in offering wealth management services to clients, How the typical accounting firm can likely generate an additional 25% of its gross revenue by offering investment management to existing clients, and why, unfortunately, most accounting firms still fail to capitalize on the business opportunity. And be certain to listen to the end as well, where Tim talks about how he's executing an internal succession plan with his son, and how he structured the arrangement not to gift shares, but to have his son buy into the practice over time in large part because that's what's necessary to balance the value of the business against what his other two children who aren't involved in the business may also someday inherit. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tim Delaney. Welcome, Tim Delaney, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast because your background is a little bit different than than the other guests we've had on the podcast so far because so many of us come into the industry selling mutual funds or insurance or some other products and, and maybe we pivot later to, to wealth management or, or or we come out of the, the more direct investment management business. But you actually started as a CPA and built a wealth management practice within an accounting firm and using a TAMP where you're not even the one doing the investment management hands-on the same way that a lot of other advisors do. And and so I, I think just it's 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 an interesting story to to hear because I think for a lot of advisors, they're not really maybe entirely uh, aware of how these dynamics work in accounting firms. And, and conversely, I know there are a lot of accountants that are actually having some of their own woes and challenges around the, the accounting and tax preparation business these days that maybe would find this this journey interesting that you've gone down about what does it look like to pivot from doing tax preparation and accounting work into a world where you're doing wealth management and financial planning and investments. So maybe as a starting point, you can just tell us a little bit about 
your advisory firm and 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 what it is today and and kind of your role what you do in your firm sure so i i started jdh back in 2000 and i had seen over the years there were three major events that took place that kind of caused me or pushed me into wanting to do that time asset management and then that became wealth management as as we progressed through it and there were three big events that happened the first one that came along was back in the 80s. I was going to do my first IRA investment personally and was looking, what am I going to put my money into? And I knew a guy at a stockbroker and he said, well, we've got this real estate deal in Southern California. We live in Northern California, up in the wine country. He said, oh, there's this real estate deal down there. It's a, it's a sure thing, can't lose. You can put your IRA in there. So I said, after talking about it and looking at the prospectus and all that good stuff, we, my wife and I put our first $2,000 each, four grand into it. A few years later, it tanked and uh, we lost our investment. And I happened to ask the broker, I said, did you invest in that? And he goes, no, I never did. I said, well, okay, that's interesting. Why would I do that? <laughs> Why would I do that? Then my dad, who was with a big brokerage house, who I won't say who it was, but they have a bull sign on their logo. Un- unknown bull represented a uh, large firm. Right. He got into a, a wind energy project in Southern California. And he, my folks at that time were living in Southern California. They, he put 50 grand into it and it too tanked. And I asked my dad years later, go ask your broker if he personally invested in it. And he said, he looked into it and he said, no, he never did. I go, hmm, okay. Now we're batting two for two. So then in the 90s, I happened to be doing some stockbrokers tax returns and we had mutual clients. And I took some time to look at what both of those two parties were investing in. And there were very different investments that the broker was doing personally versus what our mutual clients were being put into. And so when I started JDH, I said, you know, I want to develop a firm that whatever we recommend to clients, I'm already doing myself personally. I never want to be sold something because having seen it three times from different perspectives, myself, my dad and clients, it's a yucky feeling. And so that was kind of one of the major tenets of, of doing this. So as I researched it, this whole academically based passive approach to investing is what we decided to go into with the understanding that we would never sell a client we would and we would only do recommend strategies that we ourselves personally have done our 401k our personal money my parents my my siblings my kids now you want to work with the chef that eats their own cooking. That's it. You got to eat your own cooking. If you're not eat, eating your own cooking, then it's probably not a good situation. So I went to my partners. I had two partners at the time, John Jones and Cecil Humes. And that's how we came up with the name JDH. It's the first initial of our last name. Very creative accountants, you know. And we started hey, it. It works. <laughs> it's worth knowing. Like I feel like we spend... Or are some advisors spend like an, an inordinate amount of time trying to come up with like the name, the right name, the perfect name, and and you know sometimes just you grab some initials and off you go, and it works amazingly well. It did. It worked well, and part of it was I had come from Pete Mark Mitchell, one of the big eight back in the seventies, and then became KPMG, and I thought, well, they're a bunch of initials, and they've been successful, so. I thought, let's try uh, the JDH Wealth Management, and that's what we did. So we launched that in 2000, and my first client was my parents. If you can't get your parents on board, you got a problem, I think. 
So they came on board and then a few of my clients started to come over as I explained what we were doing. And then John referred some clients and Cecil referred some clients and I continued to do full-time CPA work, was doing audit and accounting and had tax responsibilities and a couple hundred tax clients and was doing a couple hundred tax clients. Like that's a, that's a lot of tax planning. It is. And so through all that, as we were starting to do the, initially the asset management, and then we're starting to do the more advanced planning, we were taking deeper, I was taking deeper dives into the client's life, into what's going on with them. And I started to see a, a difference of the level of involvement as their CPA versus a level of involvement as their wealth advisor and very two different relationships, shall we see, it kind of were two, two different hats. And it was a fascinating time back in the early 2000s. And we initially, when I started, because I didn't have any AUM clients at that point, I thought, well, I heard about these TAMs, this turnkey asset management platforms, and I went looking and came across BAM advisors who were out of St. Louis who were started by a group of uh, CPAs. So they kind of understood how we think and how we relate to clients. So we associated with them. And what that allowed me to have is a very scalable business. So I I paid a, a portion of what we charge clients to BAM to provide a lot of administrative support, intellectual capital support, which is probably the biggest benefit, and a couple learning groups that we're part of now as part of BAM. So that's how we got initially started, and it grew and grew and grew. So wait, let me let me pause there for a moment because I that I actually hadn't even realized I didn't even realize BAM Alliance actually went back that that far. So when when you were getting started in two thousand, did you literally start with them out of the gate, or were you doing some stuff on your own for a little while, and then it's like, oh, geez, I gotta I gotta I gotta find someone to help, and and then went to work with the TAMP. Yeah, we started with another TAMP. So we started with the TAMP from day one. There was another TAMP that was in Sacramento that we were with them for one year. And it, what, how they were conducting business was not what I wanted to do. So I had to find a new TAMP and came across BAM. And so when we joined them in 2000, they, they started their TAMP in 97, I believe. So I was one of the, uh, one of the earlier folks. Wasn't the first one, but I was maybe, you know, client number 20 or 30 at that point. Did you know them through the CPA world then? Because I know that BAM is the TAMP extension of Buckingham Wealth. Buckingham is an RA that's been in St. Louis for a long time, as you, as you mentioned, like founded by a number of CPAs. So w- was that connection how you found them? Like, you, you know, some AICPA conference and you met and said, oh, here's some CPAs that that do a TAMP. I'm going to talk to them. Or, or did you just find them like someone referred you? No, I heard of him through Irv Rothenberg, who was one of the founders of BAM, who's in Santa Rosa, where we live, in Santa Rosa, California. He was one of the founders of BAM and still involved with BAM. And so when I needed to switch from the current camp that we are with, I gave Irv a call. And I thought this was going to be, I don't know what Irv was going to say, because I wanted to you know, open up a shop in his neck of the woods. And he, he was so gracious. He invited me to his office that day. Come on down, Tim. And we were literally a quarter of a mile away from each other at that time where our two offices were in town. And I went down, spent the next two hours with Irv, and he kind of walked me through it. And I, I said, you know, can we join? Because I don't know if there's a territorial restriction or whatever. He goes, Tim, there's enough here for everybody. I'd love to have you join us. 
And that's when we joined in the summer of 2001. I'm curious, even at the time, really, I'm, I'm thinking of this in context of what was going on. So the 1990s, the markets just basically go up a little or up a lot. So you get to 2000, it's like, man, these things go up a lot. We should launch a, we should launch an investment solution. Then you launch it. Then the markets go down for a year. Then you join another TAMP. Then 9-11 happens. So like, is there a point where you're 12 or 18 months in going like, so so guys, you know, that whole thing, I had, that whole idea I had, like, maybe we should just scrap this after all. Yeah, you know, that never came across my mind in part because the CPA firm was, you know, my full-time gigs, shall we say. And, but our value proposition, as I was honing that value proposition, you know, not being sold, something came through right from the beginning. And I think clients could could hear that in my voice and my presentation. And back then I, I would, I was accused of maybe going a little too deep into the weeds with my clients. And I do remember one time when I, I thought everybody wanted to hear everything that I knew about asset allocation and all that statistical information. And I was just like a pig in mud explaining it to people. I went almost three hours one time explaining how we do it and diversification and the passive approach and the sharp ratio and how you change and you tweak the portfolio and all this stuff. I don't think I took a breath for three hours explaining to this to this prospective client. And he, he, I said, so what do you think, Joe? And he says, two things, Tim. One is I get, or three things. Number one, I can see you understand this stuff and you believe it. Number two, I trust you. So I'm, I'm willing to go with you. Number three, I never want to hear this stuff again from you in that kind of detail. <laughs> I go, right, you proved your point. Let's never have a conversation again. That's right. So I, I had to back up because I just was trying to impart all my knowledge on people, but it was like, it was too much. You know, I, that reminds me, you know, one of those formative experiences, I guess, early, early in my career, I was sitting second chair to an advisor who w- was talking to a prospective client, uh, like a, a retiree that was that was getting ready to retire. And, and the client asked something to the effect of, so, like, how are you going to generate income for me from the portfolio? Very normal question for a retiree to ask a, a prospective advisor. And so, and so the advisor kind of did that similar thing. I probably didn't quite go three hours. It was probably a good, like, 25 or 30 minutes of just, well, here's our investment process. And, and you know, we manage for total return. But then, you know, we'll, we'll periodically sell things. And, and here's how we do our rebalancing. And here's how our, our tactical process is. And we make these adjustments for valuation. Just this this whole kind of the, the investment spiel. And, and you know, it was, it was pretty well polished. And it sounded very intelligent. And... We got to the end of that conversation and the client asked this follow-up question for like 30 minutes of this. And they said, no, no, I meant like, how do you get the money into my checking account? So the, the, the actual answer he was looking for was just, oh, we'll transfer money to your account every month so you can pay your bills. That was all he was actually looking for when he said, how are you going to generate retirement income for my portfolio? Like just literally, how will the cash show up in my checking account so I can pay my bills? And we had answered this with basically a 30-minute investment presentation. It was that, I don't know, it was that crystallized moment for me of sometimes we get a little bit too stuck in our own heads and our routine and like the the, the urgency we have to 
show off how much we know and 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 the stuff that we know and and it leads us to sometimes very much misinterpret what sometimes is actually a simple question that just really needs a simple answer for the client. That's right. You got to keep it simple. And that was a good lesson for me. We, we've all, I think, had one of those once or twice in our life like, well, that was not what they were looking for. And you got you to boil it down to very salient, simple, very simple information so they can and trust. But, you know, but it comes through that, though, Michael, is what I've learned is, you know, most clients, most people, you know, unless they're a do-it-yourselfer, you know, they don't really get into wanting to know. They just want to trust somebody. And once they establish that trust, how it, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. But once they establish that you establish that trust with them, then, you know, you're going to probably go to the next step with them and, and, and continue the, the conversation and becoming a client and remaining a client. But trust is, trust is the cornerstone. If you, if you violate that for some reason, that'll be it. You may still be the best manager out there, wealth manager out there. But if you violate trust, things will change very quickly. So you get started out of the gate in 2000 in a CPA firm. So how long were you actually already a practicing CPA at that point? Like how long had you been had you been in the business? Well, I got started in 70, 1977. So when we started that in 2000, that was 23 years. You know, been a partner for was that 14 years or 15 years already. You know, had a good CPA practice, a good firm, you know, great partners, great staff. Really thought this is just going to be an additional line of service, you know, like auditing is or tax planning. So that was that was the kind of the the context like okay, so I'm primarily a tax practice and I do a couple hundred I have a couple hundred tax clients, but you know, there's a few small businesses where I got to do audits and then I've got these two nonprofits where I've, I've got to do some additional accounting work and I've got a couple of small business clients and, and Hey, sometimes we have clients that ask some investment questions. So let's, let's get a, an investment management offering for them as well. So we've got like another arrow in the quiver to serve to a subset of our tax clients. Like, is that basically the context? That, that was it. And, and I'd always had a, I, I enjoyed the stock market and how it worked. You know, I go back to when I was in eighth grade, my dad, when he would come home from work, he'd read the Wall Street Journal and, you know, it would have pages and pages and pages of stock information. And I I go, you know, dad, what is this stuff you look at every night when you come home? And he was explaining it to me. And I said, well, could I buy a stock? And he said, yeah, what would you buy? And I go, oh, I don't know. And at that time, I enjoyed drinking Dr. Pepper. So I said, does, does Dr. Pepper exist as a stock? And it did. So I took $180, was about all I had, I think, then in eighth grade, bought three shares of stock of Dr. Pepper, and four years later, it had split, split, and split three for one. My $180 became $2,000, and I went well, out. Well, that'll make you an adherent for life. I went out and bought my first car. Uh, when I graduated from from, uh, col- or from uh, high school, happened to be a Ford Pinto, which as we know, it was not the best uh, cars back then. But so you were you were a slightly better stock picker than automobile. Uh, exactly, time. but but that's what I had, and that was like wow, that was pretty awesome, and that was kind of a one of the foundations for me back then. That enjoyed the stock market, you know, in college, learned a little bit more about it. Always had a desire to, to track it and follow it. Never thought though I would actually do what I wound up doing in the wealth management side. So. You get started with this. The you got a couple hundred tax clients. You start 
offering some investment services to them. So what did that conversation even look like? Like, were you, were you looking at tax returns, trying to spot investment opportunities? Like, Hey, you, boy, your portfolio had a whole bunch of losses. Have you ever thought about talking to another advisor? I mean, did it queue up from that end or did you just have clients who would periodically ask you about investments? Cause you're the CPA and you're a trusted advisor. And so at some point they would just ask about it and you say, well, actually we offer that as a service. How did that come about? What I started off doing was BAM would do a portfolio analysis if I could get a copy of the statement of their last uh, month's statement. So I would talk to the client and explain to them what we're doing and said, you know, if, if you would be willing to let me have your brokerage statement account, I could do a portfolio analysis and see how diversified you are and then make some suggestions to that, and we could do it, or you could use go back to them. So we do the analysis, and oh, 99% of the time, it was primarily a US, an S&P 500 type portfolio, almost every single time. And I said, you know, you don't have any small stock exposure, very little international, no value exposure. I said, you, you don't look very diversified in my, my opinion here, and I think you need to be diversified, and then we'll show them some calculations, some charts that we had that would show why diversification is so key. And through that explanation, clients started to say, yeah, you're right. I'm not very diversified. I think I should be. Let's give it a run, Tim. Why don't you take either the entire portfolio or take a portion of it? At that time, we had we started with a $250,000 minimum, which I thought was huge. Would I ever get a client over $250,000? But, but we did. And then as time went on, we raised it to a half a million. And then we're like, do we dare raise it to a million? And we did. And that's where we are now. Today is at a million dollar. We have a, we call it a soft minimum. We're not hard and fast. Depends on what they have. It's uh, There's a lot of work that goes into working with clients. So it has to be you know worth the time to make it worthwhile you know economically for us. And for us to be able to add enough value to them for it to justify the fee. But that's kind of the, was the progression from 250 to 500 to a million. And at this point, that's where we are right now. How quickly did it gain momentum then? Because you know, for most advisors, I mean, when we got started, like, I, I mean, particularly even back then, like there was no, there was no do not call list yet in 2000. It's like most people who are starting doing investment stuff are cold calling or doing local seminars with ads or business cards in the fishbowl at the local restaurants, like all the, all the, all the strategies that were popular then and, and some even still today, because you're, you're prospecting from scratch to find anybody you can do business with, but you've already got a couple hundred tax clients. Right. You know, they trusted me as their tax advisor, tax preparer. So I would, you know, look at their tax return in more detail to see who had the assets. And then I would talk to them and I'd say, you know, probably in the first year, 10 clients came over. So I was probably at a couple million dollars within a year. And then the next year, another few million came in. I remember a client came in with $3 million. I thought I died and gone to heaven. When three million dollars came in, that was that was a lot. And particularly fifteen years ago, that's a that's a really big number, especially since you're at the bottom of your. He used to have five in two thousand, but it was three by the time he got to you in two thousand two. But that was still a good client. 
And it came up slowly enough that, I mean, I wanted it to grow, but at the same time, I was still doing full-time on the CPA side. If, if the floodgates had opened, you know, that would have been a whole different situation. But I was blessed that it just kind of rose, you know, 10, 10 15% a year in terms of new money and kept going. Wait, let me ask something really fast, though. So as, as you're... As you're getting the business going in as like a, a revenue line in accounting firm, how do you actually split the dollars from this? If like you've got some accounting partners, they're doing tax and accounting stuff. You're not doing the investment stuff. As you started generating from revenue, this did like does this just go into the revenue kitty? that all the partners contribute to, and then you take your shares based on your profit interests of the business? Or did you have some kind of earmarking process or, or something else that says, no, no, Tim's building this investment management line. So Tim gets the money or the profits or the bulk of the profits or something. Yeah, no, because we 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 did set up as a separate entity, as a separate LLC, but it was just viewed as another line of business for the firm, for the CPA firm. So the CPA firm actually owned the just the LLC. It was like a independent a subsidiary, but it completely rolled up to the CPA firm. No, it, it's a separate LLC owned by the three partners that were the three partners in the um, CPA firm. But we just so we, we distributed monies, the profits out one third, one third. That was our ownership. But in terms of the revenue metrics on the accounting side, on the CPA side, that was considered more revenue that I had generated. And we split the profits equally, but within the CPA firm, that was taken into consideration in terms of how each partner was doing. And so when John, who was the managing partner, would decide how the, the profit structure in Lincolnheimer, who was the name of the CPA firm, was operating, you know, I got credit, so to speak, for the, the the revenue that I had generated on the on JDH's books. But we just we just split it three ways. Okay, so the actual profits of the investment firm just got split by ownership, but the profits of the accounting firm actually get adjusted based on revenue development, and you got credit for the revenue development of JDH. That's correct. Right. Yep. That's 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 how we did it. Okay. So you're getting a couple of years in, a couple million dollars is starting to grow. At what point is this no longer just a thing you're doing on the side? Yeah. So in 2005, I took seven weeks off. I'm a private pilot and have an airplane. And I wanted to fly around the country and get down to the Bahamas. So... I had planned this trip, and I would I would be gone for seven weeks as we flew counter or clockwise around the perimeter of the United States, eventually get down to the Bahamas for a few days, and then work our way home, and would check in one day a week to the office, do it remotely via laptop computer, nothing like you can do today, but was doing it. It worked. Yeah, I was. I remember traveling two thousand five with like a really old school version of a mobile hotspot. Like you could stay connected. It was a little bit of a pain, but you could do it. And uh, so one day a week, I would, my wife would go shopping or go, go tour the town we were in. And I would camp out in the hotel room for that entire day doing nothing but work. So we're back there. And that was the year of Katrina and Wilma. Hurricane Katrina that, that hit New Orleans in September Early September, we left town on September 27th, so that had already happened, 
And so we planned to go to New Orleans, but we did not go to New Orleans because of their devastation. And then while we were on the East Coast, Hurricane Wilma showed up, and that was the hurricane that ravaged Cancun and then came across Florida. And it was expected to hit Florida when we were going to hit Florida. So I did not want to tangle with Wilma. So we hung out in North Carolina with some friends for like a week. And after we had kind of, I think, probably overstayed our stay with our friends, the BAM conference was coming up that I was not initially planning to go to. But I thought, well, we got some time to deal with because we got to deal with the hurricane. So we decided to fly to St. Louis from Raleigh, North Carolina, and go to the conference. And at the conference, Mark Tavergen was one of the keynote speakers. And at that conference, when he spoke, he was talking about, so mind you, here's maybe 50 advisors that are doing full-time CPA work and doing this wealth management at the same time from around the country. And he said, made the statement that, you know, you're probably at some point, if you're, if you're working by yourself, even though you have BAM at your back office, you know, here are some metrics you have to think about when you're going to bring on your next advisor. And I was kind of there. So I thought to myself, well, my son at the time was working at Smith Barney. He'd been with them for three years, my son, Matt, and in San Diego. And I thought, well, I wonder if Matt would want to come back to Santa Rosa, come back home and come work with his dad. So as we then worked our way home, we were planning to spend some time with Matt and his wife, Allison. We arrived and I broached the subject with them. And I said, what do you think about coming to work with me? And he goes, Dad, you do nothing but index funds. I said, no, 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 we do a lot more than index funds, but you, you'll need to understand how that works. So we talked, and he decided that he would come on board and join me. So full-time, that was going to be our first full-time employee for JDH. And uh, so I talked with my partners, said, you know, I'd like to bring Matt in. What do you think? And they knew Matt. So long story short, Matt and Allison moved back to Santa Rosa, and he becomes our first employee. And so he was he was specifically an employee of JDH, not an employee of, of Lincolnheimer. Right. Well, he was technically an employee of Lincolnheimer, but he was working full-time for the doing wealth management work. And, and that was an interesting conversion for him because coming from the brokerage industry, being more actively oriented, and I sent him to a two-day class that Dimensional Fund Advisors put on, and he had an epiphany at that, that he goes, Dad, I had no idea this is what you did, and I had no idea that there was all this academic evidence supporting your approach. He goes, I, I get this. I want to do this. And so he, because well, I told him, I said, Matt, you're going to have to agree and, and, and you know, drink the Kool-Aid and really understand and come to grips with how we do it, because we're not like a brokerage house at all. And so if you can't support what we do, you know, this is not going to be a good fit. And he convinced me that he was, you know, that he got it and he did get it. So he joined us in Christmas of 05. And at that point, we were right around 50 million of AUM. Then we hit the recession two years later. And that was a, a challenging time for everybody, for clients and for us. So at the point he start he came on board in 2005 and you're at, and you're at 50 million. How many clients is that? Cuz 
I mean, with a $250,000 minimum, I would think that that's actually a lot of investment clients to deal with. Yeah, I think at that point, we're probably pushing maybe 800000 of of average AUM per client. So what would that be? Uh, 60 clients at that time, maybe-ish. That's one reason that I needed some more help because I was still doing CPA work full-time. And then, so he came on and took some load off of me. And we got through the, you know, through the recession, which was a challenge for us to deal with that for everybody. That was not an easy time. But we got through that. Uh, our clients, by and large, you know, understood the philosophy of, of, of stay put, don't panic. Took, a, for some clients, more talking, what we say, had to talk them off the ledge so they didn't jump. But almost every client, I was able to get them off the ledge and they didn't jump. And so we got through that okay, and hopefully we don't have to experience that again, but, but you never know. And it kept going. And then it was probably in 2009, 2010, I, I started to realize, you know, I really, it became the difference of liking your work and loving your work. I liked the CPA work, you know, great firm, enjoyed what I did, but I was finding I love the wealth management work. And what was the wealth management work for you at at that point? Because I, I like, I mean, for a lot of, I think for a lot of advisors, the wealth management work is basically like doing all the portfolio stuff and managing the assets and overseeing the assets. But you're not doing that directly because that's BAM. Yeah, BAM. BAM gives us the models to follow. We're, we stole because BAM is technically an advisor as as a vendor to us. So it's our it's our call. We're responsible. You know, we have compliance requirements. So we we are running our own shop, but we get tremendous intellectual support from BAM. So you hadn't like literally outsourced the entire back office where they're hands-on running the money. They're giving you the models and they're giving you the intellectual, the investment intellectual property information, but then you still have to you know, hit hit the button, execute the trades, make sure portfolios are are invested and rebalanced. Right. So when we would meet with the client, we would do a discovery meeting, figure out their their need, willingness, and desire to take risk, and come up with an investment policy statement that would that we thought would fit them the best. Explain to them how we're going to do it, and so we would you know roll that out using the BAM software. But we would build the model. They had suggested models, portfolio models. And so we would implement those based on what we thought the client needed to do and how much risk they could handle and not panic during a, a decline. And we place all the trades. But, but the philosophy was so consistent every time in this passive approach that we follow. You know, we're not doing research. BAM would provide that. But, but they don't do, per se, no research on where the market's going. They do research on which funds are going to deliver the best, stay the you know stay the course. But we're not trying to. Bam's kind of Bam's a passive firm, right? Pa- passive approach. And so as we went through, and as clients were coming on, the, the advanced planning became part of you know the investments as part of it. But then we're doing more tax planning, finding out what their goals are, and then getting into the retirement planning and and getting their spending identified doing the Monte Carlo projections to say what should their what does your spending need to be to not run out of money and we incorporate social security optimization into that calculation so and then tax in uh, tax planning into that in terms of how do we 
minimize to the extent that we can based on asset location, tax loss harvesting when we have you know drops in the market to try to wha- uh, whack away at the uh, tax hit that everybody has to pay to make incremental improvements in their taxes. But then the, the investments, though, unless something changes in their situation, you know, we have the clients stay the course and uh, stay with that allocation, rebalance when needed, tax loss harvest when needed, and then begin the withdrawals to fund their lifestyle when they go into retirement. And so you get to a point where you're just deciding, I, I like I like that stuff more than the the tax prep and accounting work I've been doing for, I guess, 20 plus years at that point. Yeah, I had I had a number of clients. This this was uh, just an how the feedback you get from from people. I heard many many times that they said, "Tim, I, I trust you," and that just kept coming through. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. With new clients, even existing clients, and then clients that were tax clients, long term tax clients that I'm now managing their money, I would get comments like, "Tim, I sleep better at night." Now that you're involved with our investments and helping us plan our future, I never heard that, or if I did, I forgot about it. I mean, clients were very kind and nice, but on the tax side, if it was on accounting, you know, that was, you know, usually never set there. And the tax return is more of a, you know, it's a commodity, a necessary requirement for everybody to file. And, but on the, on the wealth management side, you come alongside them and you partner with them and you help and you find out, you know, what's really important in their life, their goals, you know, on the tax side, you know, you could, they come in for an hour interview once a year and you're focused on getting the tax return done and you don't really have a lot of time to spend to go deep with what's important to them. You know, you know, and if, if, if they come to you and their, their kids are all grown, you don't even know what kids they have sometimes because they're not on the tax return anymore. You don't even know who's in the family. On the wealth management, we go through that in the discovery update for who, who the dogs are, the name of the dogs, the cats, their, their children, their grandchildren. And when people get to talk about their family, they usually light up like a Christmas tree and they love talking about family. They don't really need to talk about their tax return and they don't really want, necessarily want to talk about their investments. They just want to talk about you know what they enjoy doing and, and we're just there to help guide them to to do whatever it is that they want to do between now and when they when they leave this earth. Yeah, I guess it's you, you don't hear a lot of people that say, Tim, you prepared that tax return so well, I sleep better at night. Yeah, never got that one. Never heard that one. That have to be quite a tax return. So you're going down this road. So I guess how large was the accounting firm as as you're as you're doing this? We were around 20 people, 20 staff, three partners initially, and then we grew to four partners. And when I was coming to the realization that, you know, I really wanted to do this full time, you know, I was talking to John, who was the managing partner. And, you know, I said, you know, I think maybe this would be, I I would like to do this, go full time on that. So we bought out, at this point, Cecil had already retired, so he was no longer in the picture. And so it's just John and I as the partners in the two firms. And so we kind of horse traded our, our ownerships. I was bought out of the CPA firm, and then John was reduced down to a, a very small minority position in the wealth management firm. 
because he is not licensed and the only way you can compensate somebody who's not licensed is through distributions and ownership. So I wanted to keep that open because he had been a very good referral source and had sent over some wonderful clients over the years and understood our whole investment philosophy and he got it. You know, not every partner gets it. And uh, as I was doing peer reviews, you know, let me talk about that with, with you know, f- who's listening on the podcast. If they're in the uh, CPA world, they're kind of developed this one-third ratio where in a firm, maybe a third of the partners could embrace wealth management getting into this industry. A third might say, yeah, I can, I'm okay with it. You know, it's, um, I could take it or leave it. And a third would probably say, you know, like over my dead body, would I ever refer you a client? And I learned that for a firm to be successful in this area, there needs to be a champion that's going to that's gonna head it up. And I was that champion. And I've told firms, if you're going to get into this business, somebody has to, has to be a partner, can't be a staff, can't be a manager, in my opinion, because, you know, those who aren't supporting at the partner level, you're going to be walking the gangplank, I think. And so some firms, you know, would listen to me and go, well, that's interesting. Maybe we will go, you know, give it a, give it a try. And, uh, but a lot of the firms, you know, they, they just didn't, nobody, nobody was going to be the champion. And then within so this BAM. So this is in the context of accounting firms, tax practices, like those, those multi-partner firms that are doing tax and accounting but want to start doing wealth management. Like you can't just roll it out as a service, as a thing you do. If there isn't some partner that actually wants to champion it and and drive it, exactly because you got a couple objections that would always come up. One would be if if we go into the practice, Tim, our referrals from the brokerage industry is going to dry up. Right. Yeah. Because now now you you launch wealth management services, you are competing against your referral sources. And and so I said, well, let's look at the dynamics. And after I did enough peer reviews and then through BAM that we were all coming out of that, we were all part of CPA firms, some maybe transitioning out, some staying in it and still doing CPA work full time. I was able to kind of develop some metrics with firms. So the conversation would go something like this. In fact, I just have one at a conference I was at about a month ago down in Southern California and met a partner there, a CPA partner. They don't do any wealth management at all. And I said, you know, how big is your firm? And they'll go, they'll always give you, you know, body count. And they'll say, well, it's about 80 people. And I go, oh, 80 people, staff and partners, right? Well, you're about $15 million a year in billings. And they look at me and they go, yeah, it's, that's pretty close. And I go, yeah, it's up to 1000 revenue per person. And then I'd say, you know, if you're doing, let's round it up to, to $16 million to make the math easy. I, use, I found a multiple of 25, meaning you take your revenue, and as long as you're a traditional tax practice accounting firm, that you have at least 50% of your revenue in the CPA firm comes from tax work, then you got a, a, a pretty good client base sitting out there of the low-hanging fruit, I'll call it. And if you multiply that revenue of $16 million times 25, you get a figure of around $400 million of low-hanging fruit that's sitting out there within your client base. And when you convert that at 1%, let's just keep the math easy, 1% fee that you're going to charge them, that's $4 million in new billings that will take anywhere from three to five years to harvest that those clients. That's the low-hanging fruit. 
that's that's out there. And as I would talk it's to an firms, interesting and- number formulation. Like, just can you, I don't know, can you walk me through that a little bit more of like how you get to a sixteen million times twenty five equals about four hundred million of low hanging asset fruit. So are you like backing sixteen million into some approximation of clients, and then making some assumptions about how much idle assets a subset of those clients have. Well, what I did was, so in the BAM network, when firms, when we would be talking at the conferences, when they were all associated with a CPA firm like we were, you know, they would say, well, our right, revenue that's is- BAM's thing is, is still very heavily focused on CPA financial planning firms that want a investment solution. Right. That, that whatever their revenue was, their, their AUM of clients, and then they would tell me their billings in the CPA firm, it, the 25 multiple was seemed to be coming out every time. And it was true in our firm's case uh, initially. And so that seems to be, and then firms who have come into the practice now doing it after three, four years, I'll say, what you know, I'll, I'll check those numbers again with them if they're willing to talk about them. They usually are. That, that low-hanging fruit multiple of 25, you take the firm's, the CPA firm billings times 25, that's probably the low-hanging fruit that uh, if you have a champion, that you could probably convert those clients into wealth management clients over a three to five-year period. Interesting. So basically, you also well, 25x at 1% basically means you can add 25% to the revenue of the firm by rolling this out as a business slide, right? Like if I got $60 million firm, there's about a quarter of that or $4 million of revenue that should be on the table and low-hanging fruit over the next three to five years by rolling this out. And I guess blowing for basis means you, if you've got enough accounting clients, tax and accounting clients, and you do a good job for them, so they generally like you, just you tell them you're now doing this and do a semi-decent job of communicating it. And some of them are just be like, oh, I already like you. You do this? Great. You, you want to you wanna help me with my portfolio? Yeah, that's it. That's it. They, you already have a high level of trust established with those with those clients. And there will be a number of them that will be willing to say, you know, I don't get a lot of, I don't hear from my broker very often. You can do this too. It's kind of a one-stop shop. Let's do it, Tim. And so they sign up and become a client. And and going back to the comment about the you know objections of, of from, you won't get any more referrals from the brokerage industry. When you do the math here, you say, well, how much do you think you get a year in referrals from the, the brokerage industry, and they'll rattle off a number of maybe, you know, they refer five clients a year, 10 clients a year, so maybe five to $10,000 in new tax prep billings. And you compare that to what's hanging out there, it's, it's not even, it's not even a, a fair comparison. There comes a point where it's like you, you can lose a referral for a tax client for a couple hundred bucks to get asset management clients at $10,000 a pop. At some point, you've got enough tax clients that converting a quarter of them to asset clients is going to be way more more valuable for the business than just getting a couple of more referrals from brokers. And then on top of that, you know, going back to the champion, how you know, and and people have told me it comes, you know, like I said, it comes across when I talk to people that I really believe this, that I, I really do believe our approach of how we manage people's money and, and, and the whole value proposition is such a compelling proposition to people 
that it's they you know they haven't seen that level of service before and being able to let you know when they tell me gee i sleep better at night well they came from somebody who was managing their money before and now they tell me they sleep better at night so there's something there that we're able to deliver to help them come to grips with with what's going on out there to help them solve their retirement you know the biggest thing is am i going to run out of money everybody has that question that's that's the biggest question people have am i going to have enough to make it through retirement and we're able to quantify that for them and sometimes it's not the answer they want to hear but at least we're giving them an answer that they now have a we can help them change that trajectory so they don't run out of money or others that they do have enough and it becomes a peace of mind that they never had before and the investments per se, that's not that's just a sidebar issue. It's wow, you've helped solve some serious problems. Or what about our college funding? Or, you know, should I do Roth? What what's the benefit of doing Roth? You know, as a CPA you can do that, but I, at least for me personally, you know, when you're billing by the hour, that sometimes can be an impediment for clients that want to talk to you about that. And so when you're not billing by the hour, it's fee based. You know, you can have long conversations and go over that stuff with them. And, and, and the communication is wide open. Let's talk. You know, we're, we're, we can talk anytime. I, I think it's a fascinating point that you make, though, this, this discussion of, of having a champion. And, and I find just it's hard to – for advisors that aren't already in multi-partner firms, it's hard sometimes to appreciate just – the interpersonal dynamics that start cropping up. I mean, we see this in so many advisory firms as well. When when there are multiple partners, multiple advisors, firms often start falling into into silos. Or like I, I whether it's accounting or and, and tax or or advisory firms, like I got my clients, I generate my revenue by doing my stuff from my with my clients. And and in advisory firms, it's pretty straightforward because that's what we do. That's what we built the firm to do. And that's what we get paid for. But when you get into accounting and tax firms, additional dynamics start coming into play. Like, so Tim, let me get this straight. I'm going to take one of my best accounting clients who likes me and trusts me and pays me very well. And I've got a great relationship. And you want me to introduce him to you so that if the market goes down, I might lose my best client who's going to get really upset and fire you. <laughs> right, right. And, and, right, I like, and I have to go through that anxiety that if I refer you my clients within the firm, then I, you, you get a revenue bonus and I put my client relationship at risk for a revenue loss for something that I can't control because I can control the quality of the tax and accounting service because I run that in my area with you know myself or my my support team but it's scary for me to refer my accounting clients to you within the firm because I put my revenue at risk right and we that was a constant discussion in the firm you know my clients were the first ones to you know the bulk of the initial clients say in the first couple of years were my clients you know John and Cecil and and Mike who was a manager at the time and refer to a few over, you know, the experiences were good. Even, you know, we started in 2000 and, you know, March of 2000 is when the dot-com took place and blew up and the market took a hit until the end of 2002. And it was a difficult time to get started. It was a lousy time to get started, actually. But our value proposition, I think, was coming through at that time because we had clients, they weren't knocking down the door, but we definitely had clients 
coming on board as JDH clients. And, you know, they, my partners took a risk, you know, they didn't really know what this was going to turn out like. You know, I didn't know you it was going to turn out what? like. what? <laughs> but it was, it was, I felt that because of how we were going to do it uh, and this whole passive approach that I felt very confident that we had converted our 401k, our firm's 401k over this whole approach back in the late 90s. So we were very comfortable with the approach. And I said, I'm, I'm very comfortable that what, confident and comfortable that what we will be delivering to our clients in terms of how their money will be managed, I think is rock solid, very evidence-based approach. And, you know, it turned out I was right. It, it was a gamble, but I was confident that that would be a successful outcome. And clients are, have rewarded us because, you know, they've, they've stayed with us. We've had very little turnover of clients. Never lost a tax client because of poor performance on the wealth management side. Not one did we ever lose because of that. And it's, you know, some of my first clients on the wealth management, you know, they go back now 15, no, seven, 16, yeah, 16, 17 years. That's a long time. And they're still with us. I, I'm still fascinated by this. You take the revenue of the firm and about a quarter of that is available for you potential low hanging fruit as a uh, as potential assets under management. So I, I'm just curious if I'm an advisor not in a CPA firm that likes to do relationship building or referrals with CPAs. Does this relationship still hold? Like, could I go to a CPA firm that's in my area? Like, they got 20 CPAs, so I can do the math about 200,000 per employee. You probably make four million dollars and say, all right, I think there's a million dollars of asset management revenue on the table for this firm over the next couple of years if we can if we can work through the client base and and like go to the CPA firm and say so here's the thing I uh, I think there's about a million dollar revenue opportunity here so I want to work with your firm and I want to set up a referral relationship and you know maybe I'll 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 give you a referral or solicitor fee for a portion of that million dollars and then I'll service it and do the work but like could I could I pitch a CPA firm to say, you don't even realize the referral potential you've got on your books. Let me help you work through that and we'll, and we'll share in the value. You could. And, and there, are, there are some of the firms in BAM that have come that route where they came to the firm and said exactly what you said, Michael. You guys have a great opportunity here. You have a great reputation in town. You have a great opportunity to develop a new line of service for your clients. I'll, I'll run it for you. You guys will get be on the recipient of the revenue stream or the profit stream, and uh, you know, and those work. Those are a bit more unusual or rare because, again, if you don't have a, at least from my vantage point, if you don't have a champion at the partner level inside the CPA firm, there's a lot of you'll run into a lot of resistance with the partners uh, because they don't they don't know it. They know what they know, which is they get referrals from the brokerage industry. They're not wanting to upset that apple cart at this point in time. They're hearing you say there's all this great low-hanging fruit, but they don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. So they're, they're like, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but golly, that's, that's a big gamble. So that's where it, it can work, and I've seen it work, but I've also seen it work where you know a champion gets started from within the firm, and the you know my one-third ratio of those who support it, those who are kind of indifferent, and those like, no way, 
if you set it up where all those partners are receiving that revenue stream and your rev- your referrals are only coming from one third of the clients, you do cre- you do create one third of the partners, you do create a problem down the road where they now have gotten to enjoy the revenue stream. They don't really believe in your approach, but they like the revenue. They like the, the, their distribution that they get every quarter or every year, however you're going to make distributions to the ownership pool. And now you have a problem where you're not really embracing our approach. You like the revenue, but you're kind of now serving two masters, and that becomes a little difficult. So that so is that part of what made this survive so well in in your firm that it wasn't just that you weren't doing internally and that you are you were a champion but that your partnership profit payouts at the accounting firm adjusted for the revenue that you generated for the AUM so you know everybody got to participate in the profits of the of JDH but you didn't have to worry as much about this about building this kind of resentment factor where it's like guys I built the whole JDH unit and I brought in all the revenue and you're not, and like, I just participate with everyone else, even though I built the whole thing, which starts to feel awkward at some point when it gets big enough. Yeah. Well, I I was fortunate with John that John is one of the most greatest guys you could work with and he's very, very fair. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily a tit for tat. It was kind of more of a ensemble practice than it was a silo practice on the, on the CPA side. Had it been a silo practice and you eat what you kill, I, I think the outcome could have been very different. So I was just fortunate, lucky that who my partners were with, and particularly John, that you know we were able, to, it, we got along on this, and it, it, everybody benefited, and, and I got credit for the revenue that I was generating out of the wealth management firm, just like I was getting credit for the my CPA billings as well as what everybody else did, and then John would you know, kind of work on who should get what in the draws. And it always came out fair and, and it worked out. And, and we we're very, very fortunate. And the other, the other thing I would encourage if those that are listening out there, if they do this, is I would, I've seen a lot of wealth management firms be set up as a subsidiary of the CPA firm. And I would keep wealth management firm as a separate entity owned by the partners but not part of the CPA firm because it does make it easier to pull that firm away like we did, JDH. I think it makes it easier to, to run it separately than as a subsidiary of it because you don't always get all the total buy-in from the partners. And I would say the within the BAM group, many of the my colleagues out there you know, probably, well, I don't know how many, I'm going to, that'd be a, just a crazy guess, but a number of them, you know, have done what I have done and want to go this full time, but it, it's been a bit more difficult to uh, extricate themselves, say, from the CPA firm for, the, let's say, that one third that enjoys the revenue but doesn't want anything to do with the firm, but they like the revenue and they don't want to lose that revenue. And I think having a, a separate, distinct entity, common ownership, but not a subs- parent sub arrangement, I think works, gives you better options in the event you finally wake up one day and you go, I don't really want to do taxis anymore. I love doing wealth management. I want to do this full time. And let's, let's, let's try it now to figure out how we can work that out. But are you generally still going to end out in a world where, you know, if I'm the advisor that did it, built it, grew it, loved doing it, want to do it full time, want to get out of the the annual tax season roller coaster, like 
I'm still basically, I'm going to have to buy this thing out. I mean, like, do I just have to accept that going in? My, my partners aren't going to be on board unless they own a share, but if they do and it grows well, at some point I'm going to have to buy out their share. And, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's what you're going to wind up looking at. And then, and then, you know, in our situation, I had ownership in the CPA firm. So we were able to, you know, those were not identical, but they were close. So we were able to offset on that. And, you know, so then I was completely bought out of the of the CPA firm, and John was mostly bought out of, out of the wealth management firm, and Cecil had already been bought out of the out of the wealth management firm earlier, and so yes, we had to go through those, you know, buying out their their positions, but it it was, you know, that's just what you had to do. I was a one third owner, and then I became a fifty percent owner, and then I'm a majority owner now with John a minority, and then my son Matt, who's a partner. He became partner seven years ago. He's now an, an equity partner in our wealth management firm. So we're the three owners now. So we could call it JDDH because we got we got two Delaney's in here now running the show. So when did this swap happen? Where you decided I just I like the account I, I like the accounting I like the wealth management work more than the accounting and tax work. So I, I just want to go this direction full full time. When when did that transition actually occur? Well, the thinking began probably back in 2010, and then it was as of 1-1-2012 when the transactions took place. And then we had a two years later, so 2014, I guess it was, yeah, or 2015, 2014, we're still all in one building. And uh, we'd been in that building for seven years. And John came to me and he said, you know, we're at capacity seat-wise here on the CPA side. And at that point, I was not doing any CPA work per se, but we were still, the four of us were still over there occupying four seats. And he said, by next year at this time, one of us has to move out. And I go, well, I guess that's going to be us because we're only four of us and there's 20 of you. So we turned out we were able to move right next door to a building adjacent to where we currently are, still maintain a one-stop shop. That was probably a big turning point for us because now I think there was, when you're inside the CPA firm, you know, physically, forget who, you know, how the ownership is structured, but physically, once you come out, we had the comments of like, wow, you guys are now a legitimate firm. Oh. And last year, 2016 was our first full year of being in our own space. And last year was a, we grew by one third. We grew by about $50 million last year. It was huge. And I think part of that was, in part, was, you know, now we're, we're maybe more legitimate than when we were legitimate then at $150 million and, and we got up to, well, $140, now we're at 190 at that point. So it was um, a, a legitimizing kind of um, event that took place that was just kind of, we needed to move because they needed more space. And it worked out. And it was like, oh, this, is, this has worked out well. So how big was the firm when you when you made the transition to go independent in, in 2012 then? That time we were probably 110 AUM, 120, 120 million AUM. I got it right. We're at 200 now today, 200 million of AUM. Yeah, probably 120. And and there were, okay. And, uh, but wait, but you said Matt became a partner seven years ago. So Matt was already a partner in 2010 before you actually did the split? Right. Right. What did that process look like? Like, was Cecil already out, or did Matt buy Cecil share, or like, how did how did you how did you add him in? 
So Cecil was out at that point, and so Matt's ownership had begun, and we I developed a five-year plan for Matt to gain equity ownership over a five-year stretch, and then we so then the ownership was just between John and myself at that point in time, because Cecil was out, Matt was had his own. We had a plan for him how to acquire ownership from me. And then John and I were then kind of horse trading what I had within the CPA firm with his in our wealth management firm. So we worked it out that way and that struck that deal in 2012. So I know family transitions are, are challenging for many. So how how do you a, a, approach it? Like are Are you transferring shares to Matt because that's a a family planning strategy is Matt buying shares from you. And, and like, this is the same as an arm's length transaction. You just happen to get a first chance crack at the deal because he, he got the job because he's, he, he was part of the family. Like what, what is that? What did that look like for doing a, a family transition? So we have two other children. And so I, I told Matt, you know, we have to keep this relatively arm's length because if I, give you a, a super sweet deal, then your sister and your brother kind of lose out way down the road. So, and he understood that. So it's, it's uh, we've just been doing 5% increments and I wanted to get him up to 25% ownership position. And so we, each, each time we did that, we would come up with a valuation, an internal valuation. I'd put it together and which shows so you didn't like you didn't send it out to a third party valuation service. You you decided to just keep it internal and and do a reasonable estimate yourself. Right, and I, and I had enough metrics from other the BAM firms what everybody was out there doing to the extent that that was a good one. And I used to do valuations back in my previous life. That was another line of service we did. I did in the nineties business valuation. So yeah, you know, and 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 it, it's a steady recurring revenue business. The 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 discounted cash flow calculations aren't that too terribly right, difficult. Right, not, not too bad. And I would check with some of my colleagues and the numbers, they thought, yeah, on service, that makes sense. So, and I was not trying to get, you know, being my son, I wanted to be fair. I would want to be fair with anybody, whether they're my son or not my son. It's got to be fair for both parties. But, you know, and so, you know, we would make some adjustments. Sometimes Matt would say, hmm, that might be a little high. So we would talk it through why or why not and, try to come to a to an agreement and fortunately we were able to work it out we never had any big you know roadblocks there schisms that that came along how do you actually structure these these kinds of deals like does he does he make a down payment and then pay the rest over time do, do you are you actually sending him to a bank to get a loan or are you effectively financing the loan like how, how do you how do you actually do an internal transition right because if it's external Often I, you know, I might want them to, you know, you can finance it with a bank loan. I don't need to take your buyer risk, but that's a little different when it's family, <laughs> like the, the upside and downside to that. We, we did the bank of dad. I did it. I, I internally financed it. I carry the paper. You know, part of that was, you know, have, you know, being my son and he's working with me, you know, huge amount of respect for Matt and trust. You know, he's the future of the firm. And, so having him go out to a bank would be onerous. And so I was able to cut him a little bit of a discount in the interest rate to make it a bit more palatable. 
and then no, no no down payment and you can actually do really inexpensive intrafamily loans. Oh, you can. Yeah, you know, so we'd look at the AFR and bump it up a little bit and you know, so he was getting a good deal and I was, you know, it's really part of my long-term exit strategy as Matt is my exit strategy and he he became managing partner earlier this year and that's part of, you know, I'm going to retire, you know, about 4 years from now is the plan clients when they got the postcard that Matt was now the managing partner and they were asking me, are you quitting? Are you retiring? I said, no, no, not not for four more years. But, you know, we're starting that transition. And part of that transition is getting you, the client, to understand that, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And Matt is going to be taking over. So he's now the the managing partner of our firm. And, and I, I, in essence, now work for Matt. And it, it works really well. He's a, he, he's, when you watch your son or a child, particularly in business, you know, He's watched me, and now he's doing stuff better than, than you know, the way I did it. And I think part of that is he got to see me do it and saw what he likes and what he doesn't like and, you know, has, has made some changes as we move through time. And it's, it's, been, it's been absolutely wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about what the firm looks like today? I mean, where, where are you now? You mentioned you're, you're close to $200 million of assets so like what's the fee schedule and and structure of the firm what does that what does that take you to in terms of of like revenue of the firm yeah so we're right about 1.4 million so our average fee is about 0.7 percent 70 bips because we have a sliding scale and the rate goes down as clients have more money there's matt and i are the two partners and then we have one and a half staff, full-time or full-time equivalents, uh, a full-time our office manager, Sadie, and then a, a half-time, 20-hour support lady, Eve. And so it's the it's the three and a half of us, so to speak, or four of us here. Well, that's, that's actually, like, those are, those are some very solid metrics to have $1.4 million on two partners and one and a half full-time equivalents. So what, what, is, how many... So if it's 200 million, how many clients is that? Like how many actual people do you have to meet with and tend to? Yeah, so that we we've got 3 quarters of our clients are individual clients and families. And then quarter of our business is 401k's plans. We have 16 401k plans right now. And so total clients is right around 120 total clients that we that we service. So kind of 60 for you and 60 for Matt, give or take a little, and one and a half support team just to handle behind the scenes for 120 clients. Exactly. It's a pretty solid average client then. So if I'm at, well, granted, the the 401k plans probably distort that a little bit, but 120 clients and that, like that's a a 1.6, $1.7 million average client at this point. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and we have with the 401k space that we have enjoyed doing that because we get very passionate on trying to explain how to save money for retirement. So we've been 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 blessed to be able to now have I think we're up to 16 or 17 401k plans in our area and we meet with we offer to meet with any uh, individual participant they can come into our office and meet with us at no charge as part of our offering. To help them with if they want to come in with their spouse or significant other or want to come solo or if it's just themselves, help them with their personal planning. And that's just part of our offering as part of managing their 401k. Fortunately, we don't get a lot of take on that. If we, you know, if everybody showed up, we'd have to figure out how we're going to do that because it would, we, we would be 
you know, buried in me. But when we, in fact, just yesterday, I was doing a 401k meeting with one of our clients and trying to explain to them about saving and, and walking through all that. And they said, gee, we never got this with our prior firm that was managing our 401k plan. And you guys really seem to be about this, you know, saving for retirement and giving us examples, simple examples of, of why saving is so powerful. Start early, start young and keep going and you'll have nice pot of money out there when you get to retirement. And that comes seems to come through very loud and clear with our clients because they tell us that, that, you know, this has been really helpful to us, to them, to help them start putting money into their 401k. And it's so critical. There's such a shortage right now in, the, in, in our country. People aren't saving for retirement. And 401ks, for a lot of people, that's about the only place they're going to save. So we're trying to you know, move the needle to the, to the extent we can impact that. We're trying to move that needle to get people to save more money. I'm curious a little bit more about fees. Your average billing, you said, is, is coming out right around 70 basis points at $1.7 million clients. You know, we still have at least that industry benchmark rule of thumb of okay, 1% is the going rate on, on wealth management is an AUM fee. So I'm just curious how you think about fees or, or look at that number. Like, Do, do you just think 1% is high and, and you feel a lower number is more appropriate or, or is this like a partial carve out because you've got a TAMP, you BAM Alliance is the background and there's a TAMP fee. So you adjusted your fee down a little bit because BAM's got to pay for what BAM does. And, and that's just how you would kind of allocate the fee to get to an all-in cost for the clients. How, how do you think about that fee structure? So our, our, our stated fee structure, we start at 1.5% on the first $500,000 of AUM. And then as, they, as the AUM goes up, we're dropping down into the tiers. So their blended rate, their weighted average blended rate starts dropping down as they have more assets. So you must tear down pretty quickly if you start at one and a half, but ultimately you get down to 0.7 across the firm. And I guess some of that's probably 401k assets that distorts the average. And then out of that, you know, we share a percentage of our revenue with, with BAM for what they deliver to us in support. So that's an interesting point. So you, you don't say it at like, okay, this is my fee for advisory and then BAM's got a fee over there that's going to be for their their investment management stuff. And then, hey, there's some ETFs and those have their fees and, and like just layer it out. You just charge your fee. You start at 1.5 and it drops down and you just pay BAM out of your share, out of your billing for their services. That's right. Yeah. And so we have a set rate and the those rates with BAM depend on the size of the firm and all that. But it's... it. You know, it varies and and it's very scalable because that rate stays uh, relatively constant, that percentage. And, you know, so as we grow, they make more money. And if we if we have a big hiccup in the market, we decline, they decline in revenue. So it's it, it, we're on the same side of the table. And, you know, I've, I've had the discussion. In fact, we were looking at trying to acquire another firm here in Santa Rosa about four years ago and, and we were in negotiation and then they decided to do an internal succession plan. And so we weren't successful in buying their practice, but we were about that time, we were at 120 million and their firm and my JDH and their wealth management firm started exactly at the same time. And they were at 60 million and we were at 120. And he was not with the TAMP. He was just doing it direct with the custodian. 
and the mutual fund companies, and they were using dimensional like we use, DFA funds. So philosophy was was very much in alignment. And he says, gee, Tim, you know, you guys pay that BAM fee. And I said, well, but Rick, remember, we're twice as big as you are. And I don't think we'd be twice as big as you are if I didn't have BAM to provide a lot more support. So yes, there's a cost to that, but I wouldn't do it any other way because I don't, you know, I am still running a full CPA firm practice like he was. And, but I, I wouldn't want to be Lone Ranger and try and do this because I want, you know, there's a lot smarter people out there and BAM has some, uh, or probably any TAMP, but BAM's the only one I can speak with about, have, you know, tremendous intellectual capital. You know, I can quantify, you know, the software that I don't have to buy and the work that they do in billing and, and sending out quarterly reports to us and all the stuff that I can quantify. And then there's a there's a component that, you know, I can quantify what we would pay if we did it ourselves and what I pay BAM. And there's a delta. There's a difference that I can't quantify. And I call that the intellectual capital gap. And, you know, I can call back there and talk to Larry Swedro or Jared Kaiser or one of those guys at any time. They come out and provide speakers for us at no charge to meet with our clients. If a client sometimes wants to talk to one of them, I can get them on the phone. And, and we've become like family. And we have the annual conference uh, that we go to that, you know, you've, you've seen that in action. And it, it's just, Matt and I talk about that, you know, because every year, three years, the contract comes up for renewal. And it's not even up for, I mean, it's up for discussion. But, you know, the discussion lasts about 10 seconds. We're going to renew and they just give us a lot of support, and I wouldn't want to be on my own without that support. And I know there's a cost to it, but we're doing very well, and I've got a lot of backup support, and it, it just works. So I, I love it. So at this point, does BAM do any more of that back office and training kind of stuff, or or that you actually still do internally, you and Matt and your, and your staff support because you find it manageable at 120 clients? Yeah, we still, yeah, we, that part has not changed. So we still do all that here. We're using their platform, but we do all that here. We just upgraded the software and they went out, we went to Orion or they went to Orion. And so we just, I have now in the process of migrating from an internally developed software that they had a BAM to Orion, who they purchased uh, that software and modified it to fit the BAM community. And all that is part of what we pay them. So there was no additional charge that we have to pay for the conversion to Orion. Your technology is, is kind of bundled into the platform that they're, that they're providing you. And where do you custody assets? We can, there's three custodians we can use. We use two. We use Schwab and Fidelity. TD Ameritrade is the third one that we currently don't use. And then how do you actually get all of this trading done? Like, how do they transmit models to you or changes to models so that you can execute this? Is this rebalancing software that that you work off of or, uh, or spreadsheets? or? Yeah, so it, it was used to be spreadsheets, but it's now all uh, interactive. We get on online onto the BAM Report Center website. Now it's Orion. And all of our client information, they download do the downloads every day. They reconcile that for us. We don't have to do that. We have a few clients that have both Schwab and Fidelity, so all that comes into one one spot. So all the client data there, and then we go on and look at it, and we get notification if they're out of balance. We look at that to see what's out of balance, and we do have discretion with all of our clients, so we're able to rebalance them and 
usually we'll send the client an email saying, hey, just to let you know, we're rebalancing your account. Here's You're going to get a couple of notifications from Schwab about some trades. Here's what we've done to get you back in line, and, and, and away we go. So that part is, you know, is relatively easy. That's one of the first things to do in the morning to get all that, see who's out of balance and whatnot, because the market on the West Coast, we got to be ready. We got to be done by one o'clock. And then those trades queue up in like just directly to Schwab and Fidelity. Like how does that, how does all of this model stuff happen? Because it's like Orion's not rebalancing software, but they're building one, but they don't have one yet. BAM's got the software and we go on and, and, we populate what we want to, you know, the trades, and then we create the trades, and then those are sent to BAM, and then BAM sends those to the custodian to execute at the end of the day. And they just do, oh, because your BAM heavily uses DFA, which is mutual funds. So like, you, you don't have to punch in a real-time trade in the middle of the market day. It's 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 going to be closing in AV anyway. Right, yeah. We, I mean, the only time we're doing dealing with individual stocks is when we're selling them. Because we don't we don't do individual stocks. We don't believe in individual stocks. If a client wants it, we make sure that's their fund money if they want to play in with individual stocks. So it's it's uh, almost a hundred percent mutual funds with DFA, AQR, Bridgeway. Those are three that we uh, we use most of the time. We can use whatever we want. It's up to us. It's, I mean, bam, we can buy anything we want for a client. But they do the research. We review their research, and generally we're following what they're recommending on the on the recommended list. And after they have, have done the uh, vetted funds and the fund families, you know, those three. And so it's, it's a great, great relationship. And so we don't have to do that type of heavy lifting. BAM does that for us to, from their investment policy committee that they have. And that's a very robust committee. We get the, we get their committee notes and you know, they're very open about how they came to their decisions. We can change from that if we want once in a while we do. But by and large, you know, what they've adopted has been very well vetted and reasoned out, and, and we follow it. How do you actually handle just all the meetings with 120 clients at this point? Are, are you a firm that, that, we, that meets quarterly or, or just twice a year? Do you, do you carve up the meetings where you see some clients and Matt sees others, or do you see all of them jointly? It's always you and Matt. What, is the, what does that process look like? So some of our clients we meet together with, some we meet uh, individually with, split up about 50-50, 50% mine, 50% his. He he manages the 401k practice now, and so I will come in and help out when he needs me to go do a participant meeting or an enrollment meeting. I'll go out and do them for him if he's not available. And so most clients, we when we meet with them initially and they want to come on board, we'll ask well, how often they want to meet. I'd say most folks in the beginning were probably going quarterly, and then we'll back that off to semi-annually. Some clients want to meet once a year, so it's up to the client how often they want to meet. We'll meet with them, you know, as many times as they want to. But I'd say twice a year is probably the typical for our, for our clients. So I've got, you know, 60 meetings, or what would that be, 120 meetings spread around the year. Okay, so I mean that's that's. Two or three meetings a week, plus or minus a little for some holidays. So very, very manageable volume. Very manageable. Right, right. So we plan, what we do is, you know, we use Juncture as our CRM. And, you know, we've got that pretty well dialed in in terms of our process. That's been so key is to have your processes figured out. And, and I know Juncture is pretty robust on, on planning firm workflows and processes because the, 
Greg Freeman's the founder and he comes out of an advisory firm and like he's lived it and run it. So he, as, as with so many of the tools in our advisory industry, like advisor had problem, made software to solve problem. It worked well, sold it to some friends, made made software business, right? That's exactly it. Yeah, it works very well for us. And we've got, well, it took, there's a learning curve there. But now that we understand how to run Juncture, it, we can, in most of it, we can make that sing pretty well for us for what we're looking for. And the biggest thing now is now, I think this was my fourth non-tax season year, and I don't miss tax season at all. I mean, I enjoyed the work. I mean, I enjoyed doing the taxes, but, you know, it, it's like I tell people, it's like if you have to commute a lot, you rise to the occasion and you rationalize it. It's not that bad in tax season. You know, I did it for 37 years and I just did it, you know, for, you know, right after Super Bowl Sunday, tax season starts and it was good to go to for two and a half months. And it was a fast paced time. You know, when it was over, you know, once we got to April 16th, it was great. It was like, wow, I have my life back together again. Once I don't do it anymore, it's like, wow, that's like, this is really nice. So it's just a different time in my life that I'm not doing it. And going back to what I said earlier, you know, I liked the CPA work. I love the wealth management work. And, and I now see the two differences. And I wish I could have done this, you know, earlier. But the way it's worked out for me, I've been very blessed that it's all worked out uh, without too many hiccups. And we've got a, a pretty nice, you know, client base, pretty nice business working with my son. Whew, I love it. So when you look back on the path, the journey over, just particularly the past 17 years since you since you started on the advisory firm road as the as the extension from the tax and accounting work that preceded it are there particular crossroads or junctures that you look back and say like this this was this is the big thing that we did when we that got it right i mean did it just come down to hey everybody just launch a tax practice and uh, launch a wealth management firm your tax practice trust me like the, the dollars are there and the business is going to come or do you look at it differently? Well, if you're talking from a within a CPA firm, I think the easiest route to go would be to to align with a TAMP, and, and there's a number of them out there. So you got to find one that fits your philosophy. Bam, because they were they are CPAs, they get our industry and how we operate in tax season, and they're very respectful of tax season because a lot of the guys do taxes still, and so they have to, you know, there's no conferences during tax season and. But because it's so scalable, you know, you pay as you acquire clients, you can do without it, but... Right, because you pay basis points because, you know, you, you you don't have to pay a lot until you've got a bunch of clients. That's uh, really convenient for growing a business. And you can part ways if you've wanted to go on your own at some point, and they understand that. But got to look at, you know, if you're making a good living, yes, you can make more money, but, you know, there's no free lunch out there, I've learned. So... You know, you can do it yourself and make a little bit more money, but there's a cost to that, which is where's your intellectual capital going to come from? Who do you lean towards or lean on when you need help? Clients have issues. You know, I've got our learning group within BAM that, that I reach out to. We talk like every two weeks for an hour. And I'm sure that could be developed if you're on your own with Schwab and just going with Schwab Direct. There's firms that do that and they're very successful at it. But I've always wanted to be, I, I would never, I was told when I was doing the CPA work full time, I would never want to be a CPA by myself. You know, I always want somebody there, a few people that I can bounce ideas off of, check my work, make sure we're 
doing it right. And when you're when you're a, a sole practitioner all by yourself, you're it. And a lot of people do it that way. There's no question about it, and and they do a very good job. This just wasn't my style, and so you got to know what you're going to be comfortable with. But there's a lot there to learn. It is an interesting, I know, trade off or tension that I find that for a lot of advisors, like when you're building from the start, often it's it's pretty easy to build on a TAMP because, frankly, you you don't necessarily want to spend all the money and dollars and staff and time it takes to hire and build out, or even just the time it takes to figure all this stuff out, especially when you're already in a, a situation like a tax accounting practice because you, you got other things to do, right? It's, it's a little easier when you're starting from scratch. And when you have a lot of time and not a lot of clients, you can, you can make different trade-off decisions. But when you're getting started within a firm and within a practice, like you, you, you can't do that or you, or you're just you you're not going to have the time you're not going to be able to get done what you need to get done so the 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 outsourcing decision becomes so much more appealing and easier when you're starting but much harder when you do it later cuz once you've got the revenue it's hard to adjust to giving it up even if it may be good for the business it's it's just it's a hard transition right well we have though it, within the bam community there have been firms that joined bam that are already up and running that are 100 million, 200 million, 300 million of AUM already. And they've been doing it themselves, but they see what BAM will bring to them to help them out. And they take an immediate, you know, income hit to bring BAM in and you convert over to the BAM methodology and, and their website and, and all of that, which, you know, that gets worked on behind the scenes. So firms have come in when they didn't start from the beginning. And there have been a couple firms who have decided to go off on their own and not use them anymore, and they think they can do it. And, you know, when I see them doing that, I wish them well and, and hope it works for them because that's what they're going to try to do. So everybody's going to be different as to what works for them and, and how comfortable they are being a Lone Ranger versus having somebody to provide, you know, a second opinion when you are you have an issue come up from a client or internally, how do you do it? And in fact, when we started back in 2000 and to this day, you know, once clients kind of understand who BAM is, it's a little bit of alphabet soup because we got JDH, we got BAM, we use DFA funds. It, it gets a little confusing who's on first and what's on second. But nevertheless, having that there for clients to know, you know, who's behind Tim and Matt, and it's not just Tim and Matt, even though we're an independent company and BAM is, is legally a vendor to us. That gives some reassurance that it's not just us doing this. We're 140 firms that I think we're up to like $29 billion now under management within the BAM community around the United States. You know, we've got some horsepower. But even back in 2000, we were much, much smaller. We still had some horsepower behind us to help clients solve some issues. And if I get a question that comes up that I'm not sure, then I can call a variety of people at BAM to help solve that problem. And if I didn't have BAM, I'm not sure how I would get those problems solved. And that's the key. And then I get back to the client and say, hey, I, I, this is what we've come up with. Let's talk about this solution. This might be a way we can go. And, and it, just, it just works. And it doesn't take that much time because I've got that intellectual capital to, to draw from. So as we come to the end, this is a show about success and and one of the things i i always talk about on the on the podcast is that and and we really hear from our guests is, is success means different things to different people 
and even different things to us at varying points in our own lives. So as someone who's built what I think most people would objectively call a, a successful business of $1.4 million of revenue with with two partners and one and a half full-time equivalents and bringing your son into the business and executing a succession plan, the business is working. So I'm curious at this point, how how do you define success? Well, from a business standpoint, you know, being able to have transitioned my son into the firm has been a huge success. You know, when he and I talked back in 2005, you know, we had a relationship of father-son, and now we're going to go into employer-employee and hopefully partner-partner down the road. But you don't know what's going to happen when you start working together. And we were very frank that, you know, in six months we may say, yikes, this isn't working, and yet you're still my son, I'm still your dad, and that's never going to change. So that can be awkward going forward at Thanksgiving and Christmas when we get together. So there was a risk there. So I would say that, that you know, success is, from, from a personal standpoint, you know, being able to work with one of your kids and have them come into the business is like, you know, I, I, you know if you'd gone back 30 years ago, I would thought, well, maybe that might happen, but I'm not sure if it will or not. Um, but the fact that it did, I'm very blessed that that worked out as well as it did. Being able to go from one industry to another industry without too much of a hiccup was would be success, you know, to go from doing CPA work full time, doing wealth management work full time, and extricate out of out of one environment and get into the other environment full time, and still have a good relationship with the CPA firm is, I would call that success. And the clients telling me that you know they sleep better at night, that's like over the top success. So I sometimes Michael, you know, will, will look at this and go, I can't believe. This is where I'm at at the at the age of 62. This has worked so well. I am so fortunate that this has worked out. I've been able to help many, many people, and we've got a very good business. And having, you know, talking to Irv Rothenberg back in 2001, and he was kind enough to, you know, spend two hours with me and said, come on in. I think you'd be great. Start a new firm or be a new firm within the BAM community. You know, I was fortunate there. I was just, you know, sometimes we're just lucky. The Lord just blessed what we did. Well, very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and telling your story. Well, thank you, Michael. I, it was, I've appreciated the time and sincerely I appreciate all that you do. This is just super awesome. So I thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.